Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gentlemen, I have a problem. I have a really big problem. Oh my god. Uh, look, I was doing some research for 1991, and obviously you look through the big films of the year, and one of them happened to be uh, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, although I will stick that on. That's probably good for a laugh, you know. And the bloody theme tune. I can't get it out of my head. It's on a bloody loop. Everything I do, I do for you. It's like I'm in flashbacks to every single wedding I've ever freaking been at. Leo, you've got to help me. Ian, oh. Ian just calm down for a second. <laughs> I think the best thing that we can do in these circumstances is send you back to your safe place, which, of course, would be Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Why don't you talk to us about that? Yes, Maybe I will talk about Star Trek. I will always fight and defend Star Trek. Don't tell me it's not worth fighting for. Search your heart. <laughs> Search your soul. <laughs> Thank you. I needed that. Yes, uh, well, shall we begin with Star Trek VI to appease the god of Ian, or do you want to do a circle around no, no, a few us, other us, I think that definitely the place to start 1991, where things definitely take a turn for the 90s, <laughs> is with Star Trek VI, which uh, is, is possibly the least 90s thing in the, the roster. <laughs> yes, uh, the continuation of a film franchise restarted in the 70s, uh, continued in the 80s, and then finally rounded off in the 90s based on the 60s uh, science fiction series. Why not? Uh, Star Trek Six. Uh, I really like Star Trek Six. The old saying goes, "The even-numbered fil- films are good," and uh, this one is definitely quite good. Uh, definite lurch back into having a really neat core idea, because uh, they were actually toying uh, after Star Trek Five. The way they were thinking of rebooting it was go, "Hey, uh, let's go back to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in their Academy days." This sound familiar to you? Um, uh, which obviously they later did in the reboot of Star Trek in uh, 09. Um, but no, they, they cast away that when Lennon Nimoy just turned around one day and said, hey, how about, you know, in Star Trek, the, the Berlin Wall falls? Or, you know, so we have our Cold War parable of, of the collapse of, of the conflict between the Klingons and the Federation. And uh, the Federation kind of having to deal with their, you know, they're an enlightened bunch. They're not racists as 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 a people at all. But they've had some very nasty experiences with the Klingons, and it's have them having to confront their prejudices about them all. And this was quite controversial with the cast at the time. And indeed, several lines were cut because they felt that that was pushing the envelope too much. Because I think Gene Roddenberry passed away by this point. Gene Roddenberry was not keen on the idea of this film, by the way, before he went. But nonetheless, they pressed ahead, and as always, ignoring Gene Roddenberry seems to be some kind of recipe for success. With these movies, I think it's the it's it's a really nice way, um, not only to round off the film franchise of the original cast, but also this is the last time you know we're going to get a proper Star Trek gathering 
Uh, I mean, by this stage, we've, we've had next gen for quite a while anyway, so we're, we're, we're fully adverse with the idea that Star Trek is, is a franchise that lives on beyond its original characters, but this is the last iteration of classic Star Trek, and I think it's a very worthy note to go out on, considering it's somewhat lowly budget. They pretty much built it by cobbling together lots of sets from next generation, lots of prosthetics and monsters. It was pretty much had, had next gen not had that wardrobe repertory department of sets and walls and things. Uh, this movie just could not have been done on the budget was done which wasn't very much at all but I, th- I find it quite interesting the climax of the film is a showdown between the Klingon bird of prey the Enterprise and the Excelsior and thematically I'd like to point out it's quite interesting because the Klingon bird of prey is a very interesting vehicle uh, in the film franchise because it is the Enterprise killer Khan broke the Enterprise's back but it's the bird of prey that finally f- does the coup de grace and finishes off the Enterprise and of course then the bird of prey becomes the ship of the crew for one whole movie uh, before being, being discarded into the lake and the bird of prey turns up again in Star Trek V almost like an obligatory appearance by the bird of prey but in here we have a proper kind of showdown between monsters uh, you know because Excelsior is supposed to be the ship that replaces Enterprise it's bigger faster more powerful uh, and, and of course there was kind of that jealousy going on in Star Trek 3 but in here those rivalries put aside because Sulu's captains now and we can have these two ships have this gang up against the sneaky nasty uh, Klingon bird of prey it's a very interesting kind of thematic thing that never really gets talked about, but I picked it up on it at the time. Uh, I mean, the Klingon Bird of Praise has been seen ad nauseum in the, the various TV series since, so it's kind of lost its, its impact. But anyway, I want to put it out there, and I think it's a genuinely, um, genuinely kind of bittersweet sound off at the end. I think it's so nice they finished a the film by writing their signatures on the wall in, in space. And I think it's kind of ironic that they, they have this big struggle to make galactic peace between the Federation and the, and the Klingons. And as a result, they're out of a job. And so they, they get told to report back and get decommissioned at the end. Spock's like, oh, I if I was human, I'd tell them to go to hell. Um, so I, I, just, just a general, very rewarding way to round off these characters and uh, this particular iteration of the franchise and left me feeling like, yes, it's been a nice six films overall. I think they stand together, episodically speaking, very well as a body of work. And, well, there you have it. Yeah. Justin, uh, I'd yeah, follow that. Well, indeed. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I have to say, I mean, I was never a huge Star Trek fan. So by this stage, I've lost, largely kind of just lost interest in it. So nothing, you know, nothing against the kind of film. I remember I wouldn't have seen it at the cinema. I remember seeing it on. It was certainly better than the one before it. Um, and it was interesting. It felt to me, though, it felt like a, just kind of a really well-made TV episode, Yes. I don't know. There was that is a recurring problem with the movies from this point onwards, though. Cinematic. Hmm. Um, but other than that, you know, I thought it was an interesting, you know, an interesting idea. But I mean, that's about it, really. I didn't. It didn't fascinate me like I wanted to see it again. And but you know, that I say that was my state with with Star Trek anyway. By this stage, I can't help but wonder. Uh, if in the existence and life of the Star Trek Six is is well regarded and well remembered, whether the life of uh, the you know so far indestructible Marvel Cinematic Universe might have a mirror in this. In that, for me, when Star Trek Six first came out, I was like, oh well, I didn't see two or three. No, I didn't see three. I didn't see five. I've kind of lost the plot with it not really following it there's so much of this it's starting to crumble under the weight of the all the stuff i haven't seen so i'm just gonna not bother and i'll catch it later which i did 
and whether that's maybe going to be the thing that happens whether when you've got something you know that's fairly mighty like you know that, that has a lot of stuff in it eventually some people miss bits of it and they go oh, i don't really want to go and see this at the cinema because i haven't seen this bit and i haven't seen that i don't know how it all fits together uh, and i think the more that you you make it a feature that the things all tie together at some level the the greater the danger uh, that people are gonna you know I mean, for Star Trek Six, I think the only plot point that is contingent on the previous films is that Kirk's son was killed by Klingons, and that's pr- very easily reiterated for the audience in Six. I think the only films that are dependent on you seeing the previous one are Three and Four, really. Yeah, well, I think that I think well, well the, the way that it comes across is not whether it actually is going to make a difference that you've not seen the previous ones, but it's more the feeling that yeah, is this my like, kind of thing. And you seeing because you've got you know you've got the new series you've got if you're not really that familiar with it you wouldn't feel entirely comfortable jumping straight into that with all the well, history behind it. I think that was one of the things about um, First Contact, which came up later, is the fact that people kind of said, "Oh, I don't even like Star Trek, and I enjoyed that movie." Yeah, and that's where that's the that's your note. Yeah. That's your base note on that, is that's how people felt. They felt they shouldn't go and see it unless it was something they were into. And that is the kiss of death for box office. There's a sense, you know, you're kind of feeling that you're just pandering to the fans by making it, rather than just a good movie. I didn't feel that again until I saw the reboot, where I just thought, you know, subjectively, this is a good, fun movie, irrespective of whether it's Star Trek or not. And up to that point, really, I've always felt like, well, because my friends were all... Some of my friends were really into Star Trek, so you know I'd kind of see it, and uh, but I kind of got the impression that you know it's it's playing for them rather than just someone. It, it was else. the 25th anniversary, so I suppose, and this was supposed to be, I think, oh, the yeah. signature of the 25th anniversary. Uh, but yeah. it, for me, it feels it comes a, a tad too late, and this is probably this is the way history worked out because at the end it's all about you know kirk signs off at the end and enterprise flies off in the sun for the last time he's like now we hand over to a next generation to continue these adventures well we'd already seen those guys we knew exactly what he was talking about we've seen picard for years now maybe do you think it would have been better if we would had this as the last one and not had generations Oh, I think the so first the I, first ten minutes. Well, I, for me, this is the end of Star Trek. This is the last time we have the crew together. I mean, we had we had Kirk and we had Scotty and we had and Chekhov in, in Generations. But the first ten minutes is is all was all that that's about. I mean, you're right. Generations is more definitely a, it's supposed to be more of a handover. I mean, we'll talk about it when we get there. It's horribly bungled. I would say as well the other thing. I mean, what, about what you've just said, history is different to the time. Yes, contemporaneously, it may seem a bit odd for Kirk to sign off and hand over to a new generation. Now we're you know more than twenty years out. You just rearrange it. You know, it happened twenty years ago. Well, yeah, it all, you put it all Star Trek together in the generation, then start watching Star Trek the Next Generation. Who cares? What? Oh, you know, no, don't watch years, Series One or Next Star Trek Next Generation, please, God, no. But, uh, but no, but you see what I mean. I mean, if you were being sequential about it yeah. as a canon thing, you could just pass it over like that. You know, it, that's mm. how it works. Yes. Yeah, so uh, for me, it was a definite tick and a little little gem of the year. But there, there were a few gems in this year, despite um, other things we may discover. Highlander Two: The Quickening, for example. <laughs> of you course, bastard. <laughs> <laughs> you said you'd give me a warning before you said that, so I can mute. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I really wanted to watch this again for the show, just to 
be, you know, like fully versed in the the fan you know. Well, but no. there is no. It's, there, I mean, it's probably much better than it we originally thought. Now I bet it's aged really well and uh, and a superior <laughs> film for it, or maybe not. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, well, one of the, I mean, the, the thing about it is, I think Highlander two. I saw it first. I, as I said, uh, I believe in the the thing I was yeah. mentioning. I went to see it in the cinema, and I, it was like mm, that was all right. I don't know what the what the big deal is. You know, why is this such a terrible movie? But then, of course. The fact of the matter is, Highlander 2 commits several crimes against Highlander. It compares directly with the Phantom Menace's midichlorians moment, in that instead of just randomly there being some immortals, yeah, this bonkers thing where there's immortals all over the planet for no reason at all, in the quickening, oh, we're all from the planet Zeist. And you're yeah. like, oh, come on, dudes. <laughs> never, never has a movie missed the point to a greater degree than Highlander Two. Yeah, it, that was the that was the thing. I mean, that was the real. I, I mean, think, were they thinking given... we've got to, we've got to lurch this into science fiction to give it some more longevity or something? Because we've got a planet of immortals, we can always. Uh, I mean, you're. I think there you're crediting uh, them with more. Yes. Than uh, no, definitely. I think that the 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 key of this is no thought whatsoever. It's a cash in. You know, get as many people back as you can. I mean, uh, someone said Sean Connery comes into the movie, and then you know you can see him arrive, be <laughs> there, and then go. Why have I? Oh, I'm leaving again. <laughs> like he's come to a party and got surfed the buffet, talked to a couple of the more attractive women, and then gone. No, and then <laughs> left. <laughs> and that's it. You know, that's a Sean Connery's not even really there. Uh, it's a sh- I mean, if we're going to say that anything's a shame, uh, Michael Ironside gives a splendid turn. Yeah. Gives his full deranged villain, you know, all of the... I mean, it's different to the Kurgan, and therefore that would have been good. If they just dispensed with the sub-Blade Runner weird... Alien, all of that stuff. If they just dispensed with that and 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 gone, you know, here's Christopher Lambert, he's old, and blah blah blah. But I suppose what they had to do is go. Well, there can be only one, so there's only one. So where does another one come from? The the thing for me about Highlander is that there was an infinite amount of history they could explore with a sort of prequel, which they just didn't know what to bother with. That they had to go in this weird, strange future in order to make a bolt-on sequel. As should possibly be saved for a discussion another time. Prequels are very tricky. I mean, yes, well, they like are. Underworld. But you know, you had, you had your four hundred years of history you could have explored with. What did Christopher Lambert do next after he left his I burning farmers? Part of the fun and what I kind of liked, uh, like the original one, is because you get little glimpses of you know these little periods you're talking about, but you only see a little bit of them, like you know the kind of seventeenth century or whatever, and it's so. Yeah, I mean, sure, it could have been explored. It could have been, to be honest, it might that science fiction thing could have been done really well, but it was not. It was kind of botched and a shambles of a film, really. I mean, this is this is how bad it is, right? So they came up with this whole elaborate thing about the planet Zeist, and therefore these they're all aliens and God knows what. I object to the and implication like- that Zeist is an elaborate thing, but carry on. Well, no, but the, the, well, no, but the, the idea of having to right—it's the the Occam's razor thing. It's like there are lots of explanations for why all of this stuff happens, and introducing an entire planet full of aliens has to be one of the most 
complex to explain. Whereas you say, well, okay, so how about we don't, we've never had this before and we don't, you know, but if you encase an immortal in crystal, it separates them from some kind of bioelectric circuit that makes the quickening work. And so someone worked this out and somehow managed to encase Michael Ironside and his army of 200 immortals who were going to take over the world in sort of a crystal prison. And then they building a new building and they crack the prison oh, open. Oh, sir. Thus you must have seen Highlander 3. Is that what happens in Highlander 3? The, there's, there's three mortals that have been trapped in a cave for centuries, basically. Yeah, so... Uh, I mean, yeah, but basically... So, yes, in other words, you know, you can introduce all of that concept, but not dick around and not come up with some crazy... Not have an alien planet, which you really don't need. ...at all thematically with the first one. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's lazy, sloppy. It's, I don't know, maybe maybe it was like one of the properties that was going to be something else, and they just went, oh, well, this will do. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, yeah, it's... it's, it's, And it's well executed. It's just, I just remember watching it dumbfounded going... What is this crap I'm watching? It's like okay. <laughs> if we're going to give Highlander two, if we're going to give Highlander two any credit, it's credit for me making FX two not the worst sequel that came out <laughs> in 1991. <laughs> that's that's so, pretty much where it, basically it's 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 like having a, a fatter, slightly uglier best friend makes you look <laughs> hot. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so that's I mean that's all I have to say about FX two. I mean really, yeah. well, I mean, the FX franchise is a very strange one, isn't it? Brian Brown and Brian Dennehy. How did that even get a second movie? First one was all right. The first one was so desperately television. Um, <laughs> yeah, the thing is, really the thing is, by the time we get the FX that they display in the second film, it, it's so outlandish. It's like, well, if you could do that, that would have massive kind of commercial implications. If you can have like a, an android that completely mimics your movements, that that's a quite a yeah. big thing you've made there. What are you doing? Having a little robot clown that could just be some guy in the suit. Which, if I was making a movie with, if I needed a robot clown, I wouldn't have a, build a robot. Stick a guy in the suit, which is actually what they did. So the FX <laughs> and FX two are FX. So anyway, uh, I, yes. I, should, I should calm down now. Um, <laughs> there were a lot of bad ideas uh, floating around in 1991, and again, <laughs> I suppose last week we were talking about the hallmark, you know, pump up the volume being very 90s. Well, in this year, we've got things like uh, the bad idea of Rick Mail making himself a career in Hollywood and mm. uh, making yeah. the first step on that road being Drop Dead Fred. Look, is the secret of Rick Mail is that he is actually obnoxious. We're not supposed to like him, and so it. it we make him a central character to a movie. It, it's a bit yeah. And also, you know, um, if your daughter was seeing this horrible Rick Mail menace imaginary friend character, you would give her the drugs to kill the bastard. He's a menace. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, as it happens, um, the wife really likes Drop Dead Fred. So, I think the problem was though. You have to ask the question, is this how to take a, a relatively unknown property in the US, but a massive UK star? Is this the vehicle to give him to make that first important step in Hollywood? Answer, no. Because oh, exactly. Given, you know, yes, the character is unlikable. And I think the other thing that really, I mean, the character can be unlikable, I suppose. But the film is pretty incoherent. It doesn't really make any sense. Even in a storybook logic kind of way, it's just vague. 
So, yeah, uh, moving on. Yes. That was, that moving, was a bad idea, wasn't it? Moving swiftly on. Hook, that was a bad idea, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a weird, something, something weird happened to me this year because, and certainly I've looked back and Hook and gone, yeah, okay, that just happened. But, uh, I don't know, there must have been something, there must have been a chemical imbalance because I was obsessed with Hook. I, I think right. uh, you were in university. Uh, it, it I think I know it, it, what the chemical imbalance was and why you just kept watching it over and over again <laughs> hypnotically. Uh, tell us more, Justin. What was sorry? What, tell no. us more. What was it all about? Why were you obsessed? What? Some kind of... It awakened some kind of childish spirit in me. There was something just overcome me. I, I can't explain it really other than that. I just was... It was very, you know, magical and, I mean, a bit saccharine now that I look back at it. But um, I don't know. There was something about Neverland coming to life, and it all looked gorgeous with all the CGI background. There wasn't much of it, but um, and I don't know. The kind of flying around. I don't know. It kind of tapped in. Now I look back at it, I'm like, why? And it had sword fighting in it, which I love. But other than that, yeah, I'm a bit mystified. I saw this film five times. Well, uh, we relisted Highlander 2's crimes against uh, Highlander. Hook, I think, commits crimes against uh, cinema in a more general sense. <laughs> well, first of all, it's a reboot in a way. It's like, a, I mean, I don't know what they wanted to call it, but it's like, oh, let's, uh, Peter Pan grew up. It's kind of a sequel. It's, yeah, like... Mm, well, it is, it is it's like sequel, yes. 50 years later or whatever, yeah. It's kind of meant yeah. to be a sequel. So, the, and the, yeah, so they, they, first of all, they've taken something which people love and then messed about with it for no particular reason. Then the second crime is you've got Robin Williams in his uh, Robin Williams phase. I yeah. don't know. I don't know what you would call it. His okay. <laughs> well, no, no, obviously that was always a, a feature, fight, but just you know, there's it's it's like there's several Robin Williamses. There's. There's yeah. Good Morning Vietnam, Robin Williams, where yeah. it's like, let's let him off the hook and let him do what he, you know, just does, let him off the leash and he just improvises loads of stuff. And that's brilliant. And then there's yeah. the Robin Williams of, I'm being serious now and, and I'm going to be really serious. But his, uh, he substitutes all emotion for sentiment, which probably arises <laughs> out, of, uh, out of cocaine. Then there's later period nearly getting it Robin Williams such as Awakenings where he plays you know with Robert De Niro that there. and then there's bonkers dark Robin Williams of the la- later years where yeah. he actually seems to engage with it so there's lots of them this is Robin Williams that his most he doesn't get to do any Robin Williams stuff as in being a comedian because he's not interested in that this is a serious acting role for him and therefore he managed to bring this big slab of sugar encrusted cheese into yes. the central part of this movie, which is no good. Uh, and uh, also Julia Roberts. I yeah. mean, you know, it's amazing that Julia Roberts, <clears throat> to my mind, has earned as much money as she has, bearing Ooh. in mind the fact that what's that great Julia Roberts movie? Pretty Woman. No, but what's that great Julia Roberts movie that's great because it has Julia Roberts in it? Uh, I've never really followed her career with that much fascination no uh basically the way that it works is pretty woman it was julia roberts she accepted i said, I said pretty gig. woman didn't she, i 
Yeah, 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 yeah. No, she accepted the gig. She signed the contract. There she was. Could it have been any one of a number of other actresses? Probably. There's nothing particularly special. So the the main thing is that Richard Gere has fallen in love with her. That's the thing. Yes, exactly. It could have been, what's the name of that one? Melanie Griffiths. Could have been her. Wouldn't yeah. have made any difference. Yeah? Okay. So Julie Roberts brought nothing to that movie other than being there. In fact, as we discussed about Ghost the week before, the fact that she's probably a bit nothingy in that movie and, you know, not really a personality probably helps in that case. Flatliners, she wasn't very good in that. Almost any actress could have pulled that role off much better than she did. And that's pretty much the thing. She's either bad for the movie or not particularly good in the movie. Ocean's Eleven, uh, surely she was stand out there. Was she in Ocean's Eleven? And uh, yes, the whole the whole franchise. I yes, I know she was in the other ones. I just, you see, that's the point. Julia Roberts is in Ocean's Eleven, and I'm like, oh, was she in that one as well? That's the one I quite enjoyed. I thought she was just in the ones that were a bit rubbish. Do you know what I mean? That's where Julia Roberts comes in. So, and there here she is in Hook. Oh, all I'm going to say is I think you know that the. the the totally new story was kind of a bit of a shot themselves in the foot there. I think if Spielberg did want to do this kind of big, lavish, sumptuous-looking thing, then they should have just done a straight adaption. That hadn't existed at that point. Or, alternatively, just made up a new story. <laughs> yeah, well, he obviously wanted to do that, and that's fair enough. But I think it should have just been... We hadn't seen... We'd only had the... In the... You know, on film, we'd only had the Disney animated cartoon. So at this stage so you know people would have been perfectly fine with that but instead you know it's it's its own thing and i and i think that's why i can't really watch it when i've i've seen a bit of it i'm like no i i've, I've lost all this now because i'm now looking at it with the cold hard light of day i i've never actually seen it until about a year ago i didn't wasn't interested at the time haven't been interested since watched it about a year ago because again sue quite likes it Dustin Hoffman, to be fair, is pretty good. Yeah, I think Dustin Hoffman and Bob Hoskins. Other than Bob Williams, I think him and 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 Smee, you know, uh, Bob yeah. Hoskins are. I know, yeah, um, you know, they are, you know, good fun characters, and there's some nice stuff in that. Dustin <laughs> Hoffman is an interesting character uh, from my point of view as an actor because he's an actor I was not interested in at all growing up, and then one time I just saw him in something. Don't even, don't even know what it was. Can't, I mean, I've got so many favourite Dustin Hoffman movie. He wasn't Sphere, yeah. let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and it, I saw him in it and I was like, wow, he's really good. Yeah. And then I went back and watched other movies in which he is great. And since then, it's been like, he is one of my favourite actors now. Yeah. And yeah, Dustin Hoffman is like the reverse Julia Roberts. He's a, he's a bit like, he's one of that genre of actors where you know, you know, this movie would have been a total dead loss without Dustin Hoffman. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, seen him. he's a he's titular hurt. character. Yeah. Yes, uh, indeed. The, the only comment I really have to say about Hook, I, I never really bought Peter Pan leaves the real world and becomes a grown-up and then has to go back and meet Peter Pan again. That's fine as a conceit. It's not the fact that Peter Pan comes out and decides to be a lawyer. You know, most boring grown-up you can imagine. He's completely disengaged from his own children. And and it's also, you know, he learns, why did I leave Neverland? Why did I, oh, I wanted to become a father. And that just, it, it's so American, like this patriarchal kind of line, I wanted to become a father. I mean, surely, like, he fell in love. Surely that that should have been the thing that came out. What's this all, I want to be a father, kind of makes the mother a, kind of an irrelevant figure, yes, really. You know, I can't yeah. believe, really, that I was so... When I when I look back and 
sh- shuddering thinking of that little kid scene of song and oh my god <laughs> the, the wife is here i don't know if she heard us discussing this from downstairs i wanted yes, to come I up did. you did right she's come up to talk about hook um i don't mind hook but i do think it ruins the original story of peter pan yeah because if you take into account what peter pan was originally meant to be from the original stories not the disney ideas not all of the concepts that came afterwards the original story Peter Pan is an angel that takes dead children into Neverland, into heaven. Yeah. You don't understand what I'm saying? That's <laughs> the whole point of Peter Pan. That's why he's the emblem for children's hospitals. This is why he's, you know what I mean? The whole point of the reason you couldn't return, the whole point of the Lost Boys is that he's like this angel who's supposed to be there guiding souls, right? And the reason Hook goes after him is because Peter took him away. Do you understand what I'm saying? Read the original stories, and this is all very oh, self-explanatory. Read it now. Okay, that's interesting. It's it's you know it's all very it's all very there in the original stories. And Hook was not happy about the idea that Peter took him away from his family, and you know all the things that Hook was involved in. So to then do this thing where Peter goes back and gets married and does all of this kind of stuff actually completely washes away the proper concept of what is Peter Pan. Even if you then go to the Disney concept of what is Peter Pan, it still ruins it. It completely ruins the the idea of this kind of free child spirit who's, you know what I mean, always there with his group of lost boys. To then have him go and be a lawyer somewhere, as Ian said, you know what I mean? And have children and fall in love. Because that's not the point of Peter Pan, he was never supposed to fall in love. And to have Julia Roberts be Tinkerbell, who he's in love with as well, is all a bit creepy and a bit weird. It's all a bit weird. But if you were watching it with the sense of as an action swashbuckling film in its own right, I think it's a fun film. I think Rufio's good in it. The, the lad who plays Rufio, I think he's great in it. I think Dustin Hoffman's amazing in it. I think you have to kind of go, take it as a as something completely separate. It's, a, it's an alright film. Yeah. So yeah. Um, my, so yeah. There we go. My, <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the things about, that strikes me about this, I mean, strikes me about Highlander two as well, and Drop Dead Fred and uh, Hook, is that um, these are all very strange ideas. And if we were going to sum up nineteen ninety one, I'd say it is the year of the strange idea. Because looking through some of the other titles that we've got here, I mean, you know. Who's at home in the uh, in the world of the strange idea? Terry Gilliam comes out with the Fisher King this year, which is possibly among one of his strongest broad-based movies. It's it's kind of it's identifiably Gilliam, but it stays within a sort of corral of you know people who who might not even like Terry Gilliam might like the Fisher King. Very strange movie though. So strange for Gilliam in the fact that it's. It's quite a normal movie, but then it still has those swatches of Gilliamness, and yes. Robin Williams doing a better job uh, than in Hook of, of being, you know, doing a, a different Robin Williams we see here. The Robin yeah. Williams who actually did manage to do some acting. To be honest with you, Robin Williams is one of those actors where sometimes he gets it so good. The Awakenings one that comes to our mind with me mm. with Robert De Niro, 
and yet other times he gets it so wrong. Yeah, and in this year we have them both again. So yes, Fisher King, uh, J- Justin, I'm particularly interested to hear your thoughts. I have, I have to. Maybe it was because of the fact that it's more conventional. It's not one of my favourite Gilliam films. I have to say, um, it, it, it had elements to it, but I think I kind of just. I don't know, it kind of bored me a bit, really. It just didn't have the magic that I was, you know, kind of used to, the kind of the sumptuousness. And I think it's obviously perfectly fine for a director to kind of do kind of different stuff like this. I so, always, you know, I always remember in cases specifically like these, not in cases where somebody just loses the plot, but where a director who's known for something a bit outre does yeah. something, oh, yeah, this is fairly, this is a film. It's a normal film. Um, John Waters, when he made Hairspray, and up to that point, every one of John Waters' films had tried to push the envelope in terms of, of uh, transsexual transvestitism yeah. and weird sexual kinks, and every one of them had got a, a hard R, 18 rating. You know, these were crazy, out there, outrageous movies that were really trying to break down barriers. And then he made Hairspray, a musical yeah. about racial integration, which got a PG rating. Yeah. And they said, well, you're known for these outrageous movies. And suddenly here it is, this PG musical. And John Waters looks at the interview and says, well, isn't that the most outrageous thing about this movie? Uh-huh. I'm John Waters and I've made this movie. And this is Terry Gilliam going, yeah, I can do something a bit more straightforward. Yeah. I, it's kind of an experiment for him. So yeah, I've got no, I've got no problem at all with him doing films like that. It just for me it didn't quite hit the mark. It wasn't really what I would want from a Terry Gilliam film. So we have uh, L.A. Story. That was a weird idea, Steve. Well, it wasn't a weird idea. It, I mean, the straight pitch is Steve Martin does for L.A. what Woody Allen did for New York in Manhattan. Yeah. Very strange it's, movie. It's a strange movie. It's smart, you know. I mean, I've spoken with a friend of mine who's lived in L.A. and tells me, you know, how absolutely spot on it is on a lot of things so i think so it's i suppose you're not going to get everything if you if you aren't super familiar with that culture so it's a very smart movie it's definitely up there in one of you know steve martin's had a bit of a run where he started off with some fantastic films you know and has kind of degenerated but this is i think this is this is still pretty up there i, I think, think this the criticism was made at the time which was spot on uh, by the way, is that LA Story is not Manhattan for LA because there's nothing in it that Manhattan kind of makes it's love York, stories into LA. It's kind Man- of Manhattan makes New York mythical. Yeah. Even if you don't like, if you live in New York, apparently it gives you a lot of stuff about that kind of New York culture, but it makes New York into this mythical entity. Yeah. Whereas LA Story is a story that happens in LA and talks a lot about LA culture, yeah, but it a, does not make LA mythical. No, it's a satire. So if, if if I was going to say something that had taken up the hat of Manhattan in that sense, although possibly not in the straightforwardness, uh, recently I've been watching Portlandia on Netflix. Oh yes, this That's turns fun. Portland, Oregon, into a <laughs> mythical place of you know. Where you're kind of drawn, if you don't, if you know Portland, maybe you recognise a lot of stuff in there. And yeah. if you don't, you're kind of wondering, is it really like this? You feel like going on a pilgrimage <laughs> to Portland to find <laughs> out if it really is full of artisanal, you know, light bulb makers and <laughs> all of this kind of stuff that is in Portlandia and and, and what have you. Um, so yeah, I mean, and the high praise indeed for Portlandia. It's but awesome. yes, 
there is this thing that, that the LA story is not mythical and that over time it's kind of faded away because there's nothing I can think of the whole film and think that was fairly amusing but I can't think of anything I can see in the movie that's the same as that strange black and white quality of Manhattan which I don't even like that much as a movie but I can see the difference yeah Naked Lunch bloody weird idea uh, you know oh, yes. it was that big thing Cronenberg takes on an unfil- it was one of those first movies uh, I mean, they've done, you know, Catch-22, World According to Gart, but Naked Lunch was really one of the classic, unfilmable books. Yep. And indeed, The Naked Lunch is not a film of The Naked Lunch, sort of. But it kind of is as well. It's as much of a sort of filmic poem, prose poem, as The Naked Lunch is, is a, not really a novel. Really, sort of it is, but it isn't. Loved that movie at the time. Hit that. I was really into the David Lynch stuff and that all that stuff at the yep. time, and I think Cronenberg really managed to hit something with Naked Lunch. I don't know. I think maybe it's due for a comeback. Naked Lunch okay. as a movie. I think maybe its biggest really? problem is that it's tied to the book. Yeah, because I think at the time people were like, "Well, it's not." People were obsessed over the fact that it was nothing to do with the book. Really, it was to. It was kind of a, a tangential side thing of the book but and i'm not talking about a big mainstream comeback what i'm saying is it's not a david cronenberg movie that david cronenberg fans really talk about or admire or like and in the cronenberg gallery it's a pretty solid entry and that there's a lot in that movie that is it's his weirdest movie and that's saying something for david cronenberg (laughs) In this time when he's doing all this stuff that's a lot more conventional in the sense of there aren't any body horror bits in it, this is a movie that needs to be rediscovered in that cult. It's really dating me because I've had nothing to say pretty much about the last three movies because I didn't didn't watch them at the time because I was 14 years old and the films that you don't really gravitate towards once you're old enough to watch them because it's not like some action film people reference. I mean, LA Story, I... I've very little idea what that film is even about. Naked Lunch, I've seen like half the movie because you got it on once when I came round and I was like, whoa, uh, so basically you're telling me the author of this was on drugs. Yes. Oh, I see. It makes perfect sense. And um, yeah, and Fisher King, why would a 14 year old watch Fisher King? Why would I want to go and revisit it later unless I've been prompted to do so by someone? It just never came up. There's quite a few films this year which, which are basically I just didn't see and know next to nothing about. Uh, uh, Point Break is one of those Point Break? Absolutely not. Of course I've seen Point Break. Well, that was a weird idea at the time, uh, honestly, and for several reasons. One, it's got extreme sports in it, which were not a thing. I mean, you know, 90s was the extreme decade, but this is this is before it was a thing in all the parachuting and surfing and all that kind of stuff. Wasn't really So it was like a subculture action movie. Patrick Swayze, year before, he was a ghost. Now he's a, a bank robber, and Keanu Reeves is an FBI agent, and Gary Busey's in it, and it's directed by a woman, and it's quite a long movie as well. well yeah. it's, a, it's, a, yeah, it's a bromance as well, though, isn't it? Yeah, bromance. I, it's a very strange movie, but in many ways but yeah one of the strangest things about it is it's fairly standard action movie but it's 
I really like it. I love Point Break. It's it's it's, it's an all right film. I mean, this it, it, I, mean, I saw this when I was on on, on our media course. I think it's one of the films that uh, Ewan put on. So it was like, oh, that was actually quite good. And they watched it again later on. And then then Hot Fuzz uh, deliciously parodies it in some sections of the films. Uh, purely as a note of trivia, um, at the end you have Patrick Swayze commit suicide by wave. At the end of the movie, uh, that particular beach does exist. I've been there. It's on the Great Ocean Road, so you can take a little holiday. And, oh, look, there's that surfing little community that has that beach that was in the movie, except it wasn't in the movie. It was just some American beach doubling as an Australian beach. How dare they? Nonetheless, the real place with real waves. Oh, well, there we go then. Yeah, yes. I, I, my friends, my 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 friends at the time were really into Point Break. I don't know, it wasn't really my thing. I have to say, it was was it was fine. You know, it was okay. When was the last time you watched that? Oh, God, it would have been then. <laughs> no. Honestly, if you watch it today, one of the amazing things about it, and Catherine Bigelow has obviously gone on to, uh, well, the last two films she did were like The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. So she's, she's become that person who does that kind of movie, which I think is a great shame because at this point she was kind of still doing a lot of, I mean, she did Near Dark, which I'm not that keen on, but nevertheless, she did it. So there we go. Point Break, Strange Days. Uh, she's the you know the, the big female macho action director. Also uh, notable for one point, she was married to James Cameron. And it's a visually striking film in retrospect. I think at the time, people kind of expecting it maybe to tip something off, and then we'd have more Point Breaks and clones of Point Break and and it never really happened so Point Break remains a visually arresting action movie because it opens up the action movie to this I I think it's because extreme sports guys they're just kind of like the, the, the dude, just dudes, aren't they? You know, they're not particularly offensive. They understand risks and they only apply them to themselves. You know, so thing is extreme because this is the nineties. So extreme was very much around at the time. So I suppose, but it, it wasn't it, at this point because we're still in nineteen ninety one. This is before it all took off. Well, so. I suppose uh, thematically, though, I think I think that that carried yeah. on to other movies. I think yeah. is we had some uh, we we cliff well it's not cliffhanger yet is it but cliffhanger had some extreme dudes hanging around it but they were just they're just a couple of guys who who do stuff you know uh, they don't really rob banks as, as a general rule so I suppose as, as a as a film uh, set of characters you can visit there's there's not a lot you can really do with them there's some evil ones that rob banks there we are oh, but it's this whole thing of like um, computer hackers don't all. Like uh, yes, but computers do stuff, so they're that's always intrinsically yeah, interesting. The mechanism of extreme sports, you know, parachuting, surfing, all of those kind of physical activities, you would think would be quite filming. I mean, they made a couple more skydiving movies. Uh, never really. That's the point. I think skydiving has been a thing for ages. I mean, James Bond yeah. had a big skydiving sequence. He wanted well, to people who were trying to rip off Point Break made the mistake of focusing on the bit where they go skydiving, and whereas in Point Break it's like a thing about, um, well, surfers also happen to indulge in other types of risky, but they always come back to surfing. In other films, they tried to go, well, that was an amazing sequence. Let's rip that off, and then they found, well, you know. In Point Break, there's a lot of plot stuff in the whole process of them going for the skydive. And if you make a film about skydiving, well, you know, you have to take people up in a plane and then get over the drop site. and then they have to, It's quite an organised activity, really. And I think that kind of 
made it a pr- bit of a problem with things like terminal velocity and there was another one i can't remember the name of but yeah so um yes point break is a an interesting film and remains a sort of whenever i think of point break and i know that the dvd cover has this on but you do think of blue skies and it's this idea of having an action movie that rather than thinking of plumes of orange fire and black smoke you think blue skies and freedom and that's an interesting note to put in an action movie yeah, indeed. and i think that they sold keanu reeves or as an fbi agent because it was about surfers and of course what better way to segue into bill and ted's bogus journey <laughs> My Which my happened. my most watched Bill and Ted film. I've seen it ad nauseum. Mm. I've only seen the other one once, just to kind of tick it off. What just... I liked about I'll say I so what I liked about it is, you know it's quite a strong ideas in Bill and Ted, and to do something that has the same spirit but is also completely or different different things, you would think would be quite tricky. But they they kind of I thought they tackled it very well. You know. Taking on board, it's not going to be a time at time. It's going to be about you know heaven and hell and uh, all these kind of death and all that kind of thing. I thought it was kind of fun, you know. Yes, it's, it's a very good companion to the first film. Yeah, yes. I thought, you know, and it has the line "full on Robo Chubby," which should be commended. <laughs> yes, I think it's very good. They they get the uh, they get a proper villain in this film, and I think it's quite funny because the whole time at the beginning they set up the big gag about. Um, I forget what his name is of the actor. He's reasonably, he's reasonably well Josh known. Josh Sackland. Yes. Josh Sackland. And you're like, you, you have, oh, what's the name of Rufus's character? Anyway, Rufus is going, oh, yes. Uh, master, we meet again. Ah, oh, my, 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 my most promising student. And then you realize later he's just like a sit up uh, instructor, yeah. isn't he? And so, and also they do the whole, uh, the, uh, time paradox dueling at the end, which is terribly amusing at the time, as I recall. And Death is a bit of a breakout character in the film, let's face it. Yeah. Yes, William best Sadler's out of five. Out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, it's it. You know, he's playing whatever, the battleships or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, it was yeah. Professor Plum in the library with the candlestick. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just a kind of fun film, you know. And they, okay, the characters are beginning to look a little bit too old for their roles. You know, it's, we're now I don't know how many years later this is from the original, but you know, only three. Is it? Yeah, but I think at the time they may be playing a little bit old, but still... Well, they were a bit old to begin with, to be fair. But, you know, it had all the spirit there. It was a kind of fun... It was an, I like the, you know, the, the kind of... Yeah, it just... I thought it was a very suitable kind of sequel. It, it uh, you know, from, say, from what a kind of a strange concept to begin with, they kind of pulled it off, I think. It's, you know... Yes, I for, enjoyed it. for that difficult second album, worked out quite Absolutely. well. Here's a question for you, which I, I'm imagining I know the answer to. Who has seen The Rapture, directed by Michael Tolkien? Nope. Nope, didn't think so. Uh, I only saw this movie, and I had to track it down on video years later because it didn't really go in the cinema uh, where we were. I read the review of it that said, this is insane. Basically, this is a film about a woman who joins one of these uh, born-again Christian groups, uh, and it's it's looking forward to the end of the world. And you know, right. she at the beginning she's like doing a lot of drugs and having promiscuous sex, and she's really lost her way. And then she finds, you know, she's born again, as a, and she lives within the confines of this born-again Christian identity. And then at the end of the film, the apocalypse happens. 
okay. And it's like, no, seriously, suddenly the rapture comes and you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding across America and she is right in the middle of an actual biblical apocalypse. Wow. <laughs> and it's like, okay. Uh, so that's another odd idea. I thought I'd mention that in passing. Now everybody wants to see that movie. Do now. Um, yeah, trust me, it's really weird. Because yeah. the tone of it is true story channel movie of the day. Right. Kind of, I was lost, then I was found, and I found myself in Christianity. And suddenly it takes this left turn into, and then the seals it, were opened. And the is, sky it more, is it more successful than a film that also kind of does that numbers, where it suddenly changes and you suddenly realise you're watching? No, it's far numbers. more successful than that, because it says, it says in the title, The Rapture. You know, and the, the point is that you think it's yeah, a metaphorical you know, title yeah. that she finds a different kind of drug in religion, man, and it's all metaphorical. Yeah. No, no, really, literally, it's going to happen. Yeah. And so, and also, it's really literal interpretation of a revelation as well. Michael Tolkien films the, the apocalypse in that same kind of flat true story of the day fashion. So okay. the the pale horseman riding across the sort of Utah desert or wherever it is just looks like a guy on a horse except he's got a massive scythe and you're right. like this is so weird this is not the film i was watching 20 minutes ago okay. yeah crazy film all right i'll, I'll um, check that out yeah I don't, I don't know where you'd find the copy these days this is the thing the early 90s is a is a graveyard of lost movies that that people don't care about anymore um, and unless they turn up on a streaming service, uh, you, you've not got much chance of tracking them down. You know, like The Rocketeer. That was lost for many years and is now a streaming a Well, stream I have favorite. to say, I, The Rocketeer, I absolutely loved. I, do, I did not forget about this film. I, You know, again, it's kind of pulp, you know, it's absolutely the kind of thing. And I just think that's a great film. I think it's got, a, I mean, Timothy Dalton is sublime as the villain. He really... You know, if you wanted someone to chew the scenery and he's great, it's, you know, it's got freaking Nazis with rocket packs and Zeppelins and, you know, yes, it's good. It's good, adventurous fun, you know, and it's actually having read the original comic, you know, it's very much the spirit of that. It's, is, it, is it a Disney film? Yeah, Touchstone. So, yeah. Yeah. You see. This is what I've noticed. Like you could, and I'm one day we should probably do a show about this. Disney seemed to have this thing of doing a bunch of these movies which disappear without trace. Where when you actually look back on them, you go, "Well, oh, that was pretty good fun." I mean, it wasn't going to change the world, but they get un, you know sort of unjustly thrust to one side. The one that leaps immediately to mind in my head was the, the film from a couple of years ago, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which yeah. was. Uh, greeted and of course the famous John Carter, which now people are starting to say, well, it's actually pretty good to be honest. Yes, it um, is good. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was one. It's just like really, you couldn't have said that at the time. I I I, I didn't know it was based on a, a original comic at all. I just thought it was kind of a pastiche because there were like. The, it, during the day in the summer holidays, they would sometimes run old classic black and white serials, and one of them was like a rocket guy yeah. thing. So I thought it was like always oh, like a pastiche of those. And I thought it was a perfectly acceptable film. I've, I've no idea, you know, how much yeah, it butchers like, the original material or not. No, no, no. It, but it's it was. It's not the same story. Yeah, it's a pretty simple premise, isn't it? Well, it, I it, mean, it's a superhero it, or, origin story and also a conclusion at the same it, time. It's pretty close and. You know, it, yeah, it's it's pretty close to it. That's it's a different story, but it certainly doesn't have like the kind of Nazi things, which are much more pulpy. You know, but 
but you know, is there, I think there's only maybe one. I think there's only one. It's not a long-running series at all. It might have only been a couple of graphic novels. I seem to remember. Um, so it's slightly more adult because, like the the guy dates Betty Page, the pin-up girl, and so it's a slightly yeah, slightly more noirish, but only just. It's you know, um, but you don't certainly need to know any knowledge of that to be honest. It's it is what it is, and it's yeah. you know, it's good fun. I think about Timothy Dalton is very well cast as kind of a Nazi Clark Gable as well. I think yeah. he's very good. Yeah. He's he's definitely of the period. He would have fitted in there. Yes, having having a lot of fun there. Uh, keeping on the strange ideas, tip a couple more just to well, uh, I've skipped straight over. Nobody I take it except me has seen Johnny Swade. No. Uh, oh, I think I might. Uh, Starring Brad Pitt. Is oh, first, no, maybe which, not. Which is weird because this is the same year as Thelma and Louise, so maybe yeah. we can tie these two together. Thelma and Louise, of course, directed by Ridley Scott, and I think this was the point at which Ridley Scott fans hitherto kind of went, whoa. Yes. Because, yeah. you know, Ridley Scott, alien. You, you, you do do a double check on, on, the, on the video box when you. <laughs> what? Ridley Scott? Where's, uh, where's the industrial Scott... futuristic landscapes? Yes, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, he did the duelists before he did Alien. But yes, Ridley Scott, not known for his uh, feminist road movie. Uh, yes. Uh, the film that thing. aces the Bechtel test, yes. Yes, but in, I mean, Ridley Scott is like, I mean, this is a man who did um, Gladiator, got a phone call saying, yeah, we've got the rights to Hannibal. How would you like to make that? He said, oh, no, I've just done a Gladiator movie. I'm not doing elephants. No, they went, Lecter. And he went, oh, okay, <laughs> then I'll do that. He, he just seems to want to do something different. Yeah. And so this is him, you know, you know, it's not, it's not the duelists, it's not the hunger. Oh, that was Tony Scott, wasn't it? It's not, it, but they, they're brothers and they were very closely involved with one another. So, you know, it's not anything he'd done before. So he did this. And of course, that's where people know Brad Pitt from. Yeah. But um, at the same time, and probably given that Thelma and Louise had a higher budget, after Thelma Louise, Johnny Swade is Brad Pitt's first starring role. This is the influence of people thinking that David Lynch and Lynchian movies might be a thing. Johnny Swade is a movie about a sort of loser musician with crazy hair and a love of suede shoes who splits up with his girlfriend and wanders around and has some really painful conversations with Jim Jarmusch not acting. Like, Jim Jarmusch is a film director, and he's got to stay behind the cameraman because those scenes, it's just like Brad Pitt acting, Jim Jarmusch, I I don't even know what you could call it. It's terrible. Um, And then there's a bit where he's in the butt. And it's just this weird movie. That then we, weird stuff happens for an hour and a half, and it's very nineties, which is why I mention it. Uh, and I have a copy for nostalgia's sake. But yeah, it's like you watch it and you're like, mm, David, the, the Lynch is strong with this one. It's another <laughs> movie where just nothing really makes any sense, and that's where I kind of, I think it was a very wise move on Brad Pitt's part, because of course in Thelma and Louise he's capitalising on his "I was in a jeans" advert. Here is my rippling. Yeah. Also, you know, I'm doing that, and he does that kind of front and center. But that's sort of he did that to get introduced to Ridley Scott and Susan yeah. Sarandon and Harvey Keitel and you know all these people. But then he did Johnny Swade to go, but I'm not that guy, I'm this yeah. guy, 
And that's really clever on his part because you couldn't get a, a project more dissimilar to Thelma and Louise than Johnny Swade. So there we go. Okay. That's I what he did. I always found Thelma and Louise ending so horribly nihilistic, though. In the end, it's just so hoping men are shit and uh, you might as well just drive your car off the edge of a, off the edge of a ravine, really. Well, there we go. Suffering. Women do have the right to kill themselves by a car. <laughs> yes. Don't be so misogynist, Ian. <laughs> So far, so far, only men really have had the God-given right to drive a car off a cliff. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, would you would you say that the end of, I mean, yes, of course it is, but Butch and Sundance, it's just a Butch and Sundance ending yeah. for women. Yeah. Well, I suppose. But it just feels, I don't feel that situation was utterly irreparable. I mean, certainly, they'd done quite a lot of crimes along the way, those naughty girls, but it's just like, Butch and Sundance, they, they kind of start, they, they cause trouble, but Thelma and Louise, it's just a spiral of bad luck. And bad decisions that ultimately results in them deciding to drive off a drive off a ravine for the sake of friendship or something. Yes. Well, there we go. But I mean, we we include it in the list for the the idea that it, you know, this is the year of weird things happening, and we, we I think we've pretty much we've pretty much proved that uh, thesis. I mean, we hardly need to mention. Of course, we have Toy Soldiers starring a Hobbit and Wesley Crusher. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Everyone must have seen that, right? Nope. Toy soldiers? Not at all. Die hard in a school? Yeah, that's the um uh oh, I don't toy so- oh, no, I'm not thinking of that. I'm I'm not I'm not thinking of that at all. No, toy soldiers the- is um there's a, a a sort of a reform school for rich kids gone bad. Right. And some terrorists have an idea of leveraging, like taking over the school and uh, blackmailing all the, the rich parents to do stuff. Right. Not reckoning with the fact that because all these kids are, have emotional difficulties and uh, you know what have you, they're going to take the school back. Yeah, it's a fun okay. little movie. Right. Die hard in a school. Fair enough. With the students coming back, and of course, yes, a cinematic uh, cinematic appearance from uh, our own Will Wheaton. Yes, uh, in that one. Yeah, I mean, uh, on the subject of kind of strangeness, you've got um, at the time I was kind of quite because I was kind of at college, so I was into um, kind of foreign films and Delicatessen, which I absolutely adore. Oh yeah, well there we go. Yes, it's, you know, pretty crazy. Which, which again, I mean, this follows. If it hadn't been for Nikita the year before, Delicatessen, people wouldn't have known how to take no. it because it's a French movie that, although it has a Frenchness about it. It's got stuff in it that isn't very what people regarded as French. So Nikita really broke the back of that, and this just pushes that further into this sort of fabulous, sort of French Gilliam kind of uh, thing. Well, I think think we're we're circling around some big movies we're just simply not getting to. Yes, we are. I was. I just wanted to mop up all the ones that we we were coming around. The last two that I think are worth mentioning are The Hard Way, which is one of these movies that has disappeared, like Quick Change last show that was a great movie you got michael j fox and james woods yeah you know as a great double i mean it's a great buddy comedy you must have seen the hard way right nope um i don't think i have actually Uh, michael j fox is uh, a movie star who decides that for his new role as a gritty cop he has to follow around the grittiest cop he can find who is played by James Woods. Yeah, I have seen could... so I didn't know it was called that. I thought yes. it was The Rookie or something, so I'm getting confused. Oh, oh no, that's last year. With... And Clint Eastwood. Yeah, and basically, it's a buddy comedy, uh, but it's a perfectly serviceable one, 
and it really good. And James Woods is excellent, and as yeah. Michael J. Fox is an amazingly strong actor. So it it, it rises above the general herd. But yeah, it's a film that people don't really revisit these days, which is sad. And uh, the weirdest that John Claude Van Damme could work up to in this year of weirdness is to have two of him in one movie with yeah. a double impact, in which two of him punch people instead of just one of him. So less said about that the better. So uh, what big movie that we're circling around catches your eye? Well, obviously I'm talking about the the most hotly anticipated sequel uh, for some time in cinema, which would be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. (laughs) No, it isn't. (laughs) Um, Also, uh, Freddy's Dead Final Nightmare, if only it had been. No, no, no. Yes, uh, shall, shall we? Uh, shall we embrace it? The come with me if you want to live. Yes, Terminator Two. Go, go ahead. Terminator Two. Oh, what, want me to go? Okay, well, fair enough. But a spark. But I get going. Okay, Terminator Two. Well, my goodness me, I think this is this is the movie where Schwarzenegger. You know, he was already kind of a kind of a thing, but this is where he just became a superstar, as far as I was concerned. It, it's it's a really clever turn and uh, done because Arnie doesn't want to play a bad guy anymore. That he becomes the good Terminator, and suddenly the Terminator's kind of cool in a dorky kind of way, and he's up against a really clever opponent in, in you know James Cameron's piece of I can do CGI now. Look what I can do, T one thousand. He was a genuinely sinister villain. You really hate the T-1000 by the end of the movie. And watching him die in a vat of boiling metal is frankly very satisfying. Um, but it's it's just, just the Terminator. It was always a good monster, but the Terminator suddenly became a cool monster. This, I mean, there were comics for Terminator knocking around before this came along, but afterwards it seemed to be a huge explosion. It was just a science fiction movie. I, I couldn't get bored of watching again and again and again. Uh, I, I was never perturbed by the fact that there is a kid in the movie, everybody. There's a kid. I don't think it really does matter because he's, Reddy Furlong plays a character that has had to grow up so much that even though he still has some certain childish characteristics, he's reasonably level-headed and clear-thinking about things. Once, once, you know, once the crap really starts going... It, it's just, I think it's also the perfect end of the Terminator series. Everything in the first Terminator is picked up upon, expanded upon brilliantly, and then resolved. There really isn't any further need for any further Terminator films, you know, in this narrative plotline. I think it's all, all been done brilliantly. Uh, I mean, guys, I mean, I, I know it's, it's I, one I of my favourite films like ever. The, but... I think it's a cracking film. It's great because, you know, you've got this strong idea to begin with, this kind of the Terminator film. And you really get to see what that future looks like. Now we've got these effects and everything is kind of like, you know, it's it's just wonderful. I like the what I liked was the character, the, the what happens to the characters between those films. So you had a Sarah Connor character who is, you know, a different person completely, you know, this is not this kind of, And generally you know, this unbalanced. Is not, this is not this, this is not this kind of, you know, the victim. This is someone who can kick ass. You know, it's it's a real formidable. And I say you've got the flip of the Terminator, of course. I mean, it just all comes together. You know, it's a it's a perfect action film, as far as I can tell. It's you know, it's got everything. Aside from the conceit that oh, the the, the, um, the machine tried to send another Terminator back through time. Apart from that conceit, it's it's brilliant. I mean, of course, yes. This is uh, Arnie in his stride, fully in his stride. Possibly, one might say the apex 
yeah. of uh, Arnie's presence. Although I would say possibly not the apex of his, like like essentially, I think True Lies is a worthy entry yeah. into the Arnie canon after this. But certainly, Judgment Day is the point at which Arnold Schwarzenegger is as big Zenith. as he possibly could be as a star. I mean, they, uh, they paid him with a, with a jumbo jet, didn't they, or something? Wasn't that was it? Was his yeah, kind of right, his salary for the film? The thing I was going to say is that you know Linda Hamilton's character, she she's you no, know, she has she's genuinely messianic delusions about her child, uh, and so she's genuinely unhinged, and she becomes a commander and a killer and a terrorist. Uh, but ultimately, the, the, the sort of moral of the film is you, you just can't go around killing people, really. Because she, she tries to become a Terminator herself and kill yeah. Miles Dyson, but finds she can't. So, you know, the, the, the message of the film is kind of a hope for humanity, I suppose, in what was initially quite a nihilistic ending to the first Terminator film, which was we're all going to die in a nuclear war and the machine's going to take over and uh, only a, a bloody war of flesh against steel is going to liberate us, at which point we inherit a nuclear wasteland. Congratulations. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 the kind of hope that Terminator 2 brings in. There is no future except that which we make ourselves, and this gift is given to us, and then snatched away in Terminator 3, where it becomes quite fatalistic and just let this one go. We can go. forget about that. Yes, we can. Forget. It never happened. Forget. The Bible stops at the Old Testament kind of a guy, you know? Um, so but Also, the Bible stops at the uh, television series, which was careful to unpick that and get rid of it. Yes. <laughs> well, you, you can actually kind of slot them all back in together again, if you really wanted to, but let's not bother. But, uh, I don't know, it's just sequences from this movie, I could just watch again and again, the, the chase on yep. the bike, when chasing in the, in the big articulated lorry, the escape from the uh, mental asylum, the, the big chase at the end into the, into, the, into the smelting pit. It's just all these bits you can watch again and again. And when it came out with, with, an, with an extended edition years later, and some of the stuff they took out was genuinely interesting. And it was like, oh, this this is this is really something that James Cameron has, has put a great deal of thought and care into making and crafting. I mean, it was the most expensive film ever made in its day, and it was it's a, a it's a genuine juggernaut. And you know, there's that thing in Scream Two where they because it's Scream is a sort of uh, parodies films, and they have a discussion about sequels, and they always say no sequel is ever as good as the first film. And someone says Empire Strikes Back, and they go a planned trilogy doesn't count. And then someone shouts out, you know, Terminator Two, Judgment Day, and Aliens, and the guy says, oh, someone got a hard on for James Cameron, and dismisses it. But it's like, no, 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 Aliens is genuinely a much. It's like goes in a completely different direction, but it's a really good sequel film to Aliens. Alien and Terminator Two, what a brilliant sequel to the original Terminator film. This yeah. is this is definitively this is this is the model about how you make a really good sequel to a film that is bigger, has bigger aspirations, has greater reach than the original film. It expands on the first film. It is it is it is yeah, like you. Yeah, it makes the first film better. It just yes, that is exactly it. it. It makes the first yeah. film better. Terminator Two. My experience of it, because obviously you say obviously, but yeah, no, obviously I went to see it at the cinema. Everybody went to see it at the cinema, but it. It didn't own the year, did it? And I think the reason it didn't own the year is because the expectation was so insanely high that when it was met, I certainly came away from it going, well, that was remarkable, but that's what we were promised, so I'm happy. <laughs> and that was kind of it. Whereas I think surprises... I mean, this is why Ghost owned 1990, because it was a surprise. It was a sucker punch. came out of nowhere. No one knew anything about it. No one knew what it was. And then afterwards, that's all anybody could talk about. Whereas Terminator 2, people talked about it before. People talked about it during. People talked about it afterwards. There was a fairground ride. 
do you know and and a big cabinet arcade machine there um, was Robocop versus Terminator coin book series yes they even made a third film mind you that was just so he could become governor of California but whatever but yeah, yeah. It, it was it yeah uh, wow is all I can say uh, is anyone else got anything to add because I just want to sit here and hum in pleasure at the thought of having <laughs> seen that movie well, we can't leave on that note, clearly. Well, we've, got, we've got plenty uh, to do before we depart. Yeah, we've got a couple of movies to do before we we move on from these subjects. And the two movies, these are the ones that owned the year, but they had to own them on different levels. Let's start with the one that owned, basically, every person who could get in to see an 18-rated movie, this was the year of The Silence of the Lambs. Yes. Hotly debated, immaculately crafted, yeah. crazy, just a crazy movie in retrospect everything everything they say about the movie is true i mean i didn't watch it for a very long time as only with the advent of the internet though i finally got around to seeing science of the lambs and it is true any scene between jodie foster and auntie hopkins is electric and the scenes in between just can't wait for them to get back to jodie and anthony again it's hypnotically interesting to watch it is when 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 he eventually gets out uh like he's kind of it's kind of uh, okay then, because that you know that that's definitely what you take away from it. Just the intensity, you know, the the kind of manipulation, the the, the and the play against each other. Yeah, absolutely mesmerising. I mean, what's really interesting about it is that um, obviously you had years before you'd had Manhunter, directed by Michael Mann, yeah. in which uh, Brian Cox had turned in. A far more understated version oh, absolutely. of Lecter. And there's even a feeling, I mean, this is possibly worthy of a, a whole section by itself, but the, the whole Hannibal Lecter verse is based around the interpretation of Hannibal Lecter in this movie, Science of the Lambs. Even though Ridley Scott puts his own stamp on it in Hannibal, which incidentally is, is a, I, I really like Hannibal. I think of all the Hannibal Lecter films, Hannibal is actually my favourite because of all the stuff that's going on in there that is just completely bonkers. And then Red Dragon, which was made as a sort of studio sort of... We've got another book we can do, guys. Let's expand well, the part Hannibal Lecter's in it. Well, because Man, well, yes, because Manhunter never really took part in the same universe as Science of the Lambs. And so they wanted something that fit that you could watch Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal in a row and it would make into some sort of visually coherent thing. And it's where I understood that what Brett Ratner does in the source of where he's brought in to do this kind of project is that he looks at the source material and then just does a kind of cardboard cut and paste just about good enough version of it. X3 is exactly the same in this respect, is that it's just... I'm just copying what the other people have done in a sort of not quite as good but he, way. But he can't kill off Ed Norton at the end, can he? Well, I think that was him not... Brett Ratner doesn't interfere with the studio. So when they said, no, he's not going to die at the end, they went, OK. He's a, he's a gun for hire. He's not someone who makes a film and goes, I really want to stick to the integrity of this story. So, yeah, they just made it the way they wanted to make it. So there we go. Red Dragon is is very much uh, looked down upon because they say Anthony Hopkins has gone too far over the top. It's like you have seen the other movies, right? Yes. And, you know, Jonathan Demme was really reining him in in that first movie. And 
possibly if he'd known the future, he might not have bothered. So, yeah, I mean, Hansi Hopkins was allowed to run away with it. Ed Norton is great. You know, Ed, Ed Norton is really good as Will Graham. Philip Seymour Hoffman. There's not a bad movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's the way that that uh, meme goes. And indeed, you know, he's great in it. There's some really good stuff in Red Dragon. If you were going to say anything, it's weak because it's just kind of done by numbers. But even Red Dragon done by numbers. Oh, lest we forget, the serial killer played by Ralph Fiennes. Amazing. Amazing. Just the whole, yeah. Kind of creepy, isn't he? Very, yeah, unsettling. So there's some great stuff going on. It's just the direction's not particularly up to much. But then that on a bad day is so much better than a lot of other stuff. So, you know. But anyway, yeah, Silence of the Lambs was where that all began. Yeah. And, and, you know, did breakout stuff. You know, Jodie Foster was in the lead. And, of course, you know, the prevailing Hollywood wisdom was that women couldn't open movies and that knocked this into a cop hat. And then, of course, it, it, there was quite a big problem with uh, LGBT groups going, you know, why is the serial killer, you know, he's seen as someone who's... Freakish. I don't well, who wants to be transsexual. But it's like, well, it never held water. I think there was a, it was a, a big publicity thing. Because honestly, who here thought of Buffalo Bill as so, a wannabe transsexual and not just a nut job? Yeah, exactly. I think it's just you know, the old chestnut because sometimes it happens every so often. You know, a character will turn out to have been a man all along, to transsexual, and they were the murderer the whole time. It pops up once or twice on television and things like that. So I can understand them being aggravated that this this meme is perpetuating that. And it's purely because just people find transsexuals unnerving. Gay, we can understand, but a man in a dress wanting to be a woman, ooh, that, that's, just, that's just weird. But what's really weird about it is that in the movie, <clears throat> it is explicitly stated that this guy believes himself to be transsexual, but is in fact not transsexual. He's a nutball. You know, it, whatever's going on in his psychology is not transsexualism. It's not. He believes it is because he can't face the truth about himself. And this is one of the really interesting things about the whole Hannibal Lecter and what the rash of forensic psychology things that came out after this is this idea of people contemplating their own identity and, and you know, that kind of thing as the serial killer. I mean, you know, the downside of the Silence of the Lambs is that since Silence of the Lambs, that kind of psychological serial killer thing has just gone everywhere yeah. You know, it could possibly go and then to a few places it shouldn't have gone and then to taking lives with Angelina Jolie. Oh, God, that was a terrible movie, but we'll get to it. Silence of the Lambs kicks that off and I suppose it becomes a motif of the 90s, so it's there. Another motif of the 90s, of course, is uh, the man who ate all the pies, Kevin Costner. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> I know the in-joke, no one else does. <laughs> well, people who read Empire magazine, round about Yeah, yeah that's a, because, well, let's look, we'll stick it in the coda. I don't know. Yes, we'll yes, fine. But this year was totally owned for most people, the, you know, the people who didn't want to go see a, a weirdo film about serial killers, by Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Mm. And uh, having watched this, this very, like, last night, 
I watched this movie. Yeah. I also watched Hot Shots, which we haven't talked about at all. But yeah, Hot Shots, thumbs up. It's a spoof of Tom. Yeah, it's fun. A little bit late, but there we go. Right, it's, it's also on. it's also uh, Charlie Sheen doing a spoof of action movies just a year after doing um, Navy uh, Seals. Navy Seals. So it's yes. like, yeah, guys, I appreciate that. I'm just cheese, so I'm just going to go yes. cheese. Robin, anyway, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is the thing I watched this last night, and I must say, last night, I've watched bits of this movie, I've never watched the whole movie before from end to end so this was my first watching of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves it leaves you with many questions, one why was Kevin Costner a huge star? Um, <laughs> I've always asked, I mean, they were joking before the film came out about, you know, they've cast Kevin Costner as Robin Hood and everyone was joking, going, oh, is it going to be a case of the sheriff surrounding him and going, Robin, you will surrender and give yourselves up? And Robin replying, the hell I will. But but he genuinely just carries on with his American accent and, and like, whatever, guys. And is that bravery? Is that foolishness? Well, I don't know what it is. Is it it's believable Kevin... that his father is Brian Blessed? I don't know. Well, that is unbelievable. Yes, that's <laughs> very unbelievable. That's why they don't have a scene together. This is the thing. This is why, why I really asked the question. I guess if he had an American accent, but been this magnetic cinematic presence, if it had been Tom Cruise plays Robin Hood, then I think we would have forgiven it in the long term because it's Tom Cruise. You don't expect anything else from Tom Cruise, and indeed you don't from Kevin Costner. The difference would be that Tom Cruise would never deliver a line like this. Oh, it is so good to be at home. I have invested so much. Like, he literally he <laughs> lies down in the beach, and he literally delivers the line like that. He doesn't put spaces between the words. He's got no diction. He mumbles. It's just... What? But he probably figures Morgan Freeman is in the scene with him. Who's listening to him anyway? I I mean, you're having a problem with a line, Kevin. Just cut the line. Well, Well, he he did edit the film, didn't he? Apparently, he edited the film and cut out a lot of Alan Rickman's parts that could be completely uh, unbased in reality. That's that's what I heard, because Alan Rickman was a bit about that. You know the the you know the fact the fact that you know it starts off on uh, uh, the White Cliffs of Dover. And then via Adrian's Wall ends up in Nottingham is beyond me. It's just kind of I just sat there going, "What is you know?" Robin Hood, like, what is this? <laughs> Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I th- well, I think this is the thing. I think it kind of sits uncomfortably between two stools. In the past, that whole White Cliffs of Dover, Hadrian's Wall, blah 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 thing would have been accepted as well this is how hollywood sees the british arts it's like the great the greatest hits of the british isles that's how it would have been you know in the past nobody cares they just want it to feel british you know let's get it going it's brilliant so they had that kind of thing but then at the other hand one of the things that jars you out of that is that they didn't want people having like errol flynn type costumes now the costumes are not realistic but they have this kind of patina of stylish past chic sort of we're trying to be a bit more serious minded about this which does i mean and then it kind of works it doesn't really work but it kind of works but it that's kind of the future the future is getting further and further into historical accuracy and you know i mean if you contrast robin hood prince of thieves with gladiator like gladiator is no more realistic than robin hood prince of thieves but it does a hell of a lot better pretending to be realistic yeah. than um, Robin Hood, Fruits of Thieves. And 
there was obviously somebody, Kevin Costner, the producers, all of this going, nobody will care about this. Nobody will care about that. They just want the spectacle. They just want the yarn. They just want the feeling. And people went to it. And to be honest, it, derisory was the reaction. Even though it was a huge movie and a lot of people did enjoy it, even the people who enjoyed it said, but it, come on, it's a bit, yes. you know. Robin Hood with an American I accent. The, at the time, there was another one, wasn't there? Yeah, I, Patrick I, Bergen. Yeah, I preferred that, actually. I've never seen that one. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's still, you know, silly stuff, but the fact that, uh, I don't know, it kind of, uh, out of the two, it seemed a little bit more authentic, even though it's obviously not really, but... The wife would like to talk. Uh, of course I'd like to talk. Guess where I'm from. Guess where oh, I was born and yes, raised. Yes, Nottingham. Yeah, I'm a Nottingham girl. You, you know, I'm... As much as you lot are all sat there going, oh, Robin Hood, we can talk about it as English people. I'm a Nottingham girl. You're literally destroying my heritage here, people. Um, I have some issues with it on the level of it tries to be a Hollywood epic, but it's still got the Errol Flynn-ness about it. I didn't like, I can't remember her name. I can never remember. Mary Elizabeth Mastrotonia. I didn't like her cast as Maid Marian. I think she's brilliant in things like The Abyss and things like that. But I think she's too capable as Maid Marian. I actually think she's too capable to be Maid Marian. I think she, I think Maid Marian needed to be a bit more simpering and a bit more binty, especially when you've got Alan Rickman trying to do the worst rape scene <laughs> in the history of Mag. It's almost carry on. Excuse me, there's too much noise. I'm trying to rape my wife. You know, what I mean? it's like, oh, for Christ's sake, people. Alan Rickman's amazing in it, considering he was pretty much an unknown. But it is almost cut comedy. It really is. He was the dude but, from Die yeah, Hard. He wasn't unknown. Yes, he, he was, well, he was the villain in Die Hard. That's but who he, he was. was pretty much, a, compared to Kevin Costner, he wasn't a big actor at that Yet. time. He wasn't although, Alan Rickman, who we know although, now. Although, weirdly, this is kind of the film that made him that, because they went, wow, he can do German supervillain yeah. and the Sheriff of Nottingham, yeah. and that was it. Alan Rickman from the, is yeah. Alan Rickman now. Yeah, so. which is cool, because Alan Rickman is a worthy actor. So, you know, that's fair enough. But as I said, he, he, some of his stuff that he got was a little bit carry-on and a little bit... I don't know what this film wants to be. You've got a maid Marion who's a little bit too capable and a little bit too kick-ass and not simpering and save me Robin enough. You've got a Robin who's... Although although in... after the first scene when she nearly kills him, yes. she conveniently forgets how to fight yeah. for the rest of the movie. Yeah, which is really interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's like you've got all of this stuff going off that's kind of really just stupid. You've got them, you know, catapulting each other over walls and doing all of this stuff. You've Actually, got no... You've got no historical accuracy at all. You've got no British high oil accuracy at all. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Well, Robin Hood is a call for high adventure, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the problem I, is... I would suggest watching Maid Marian and Merry Men, if you really want to. <laughs> that, did, that did all of that much better and funnier. The problem is that the high adventure isn't, isn't particularly high or adventurous. That's what I'm it's not um, very good fun. That's the thing you expect swashbuckling fun, and you're not getting. Well, it. I think, and I think one of I'd the. I'd rather go watch yeah. the Three Musketeers. I think one of the big problems with it is the fact that, like this movie that, that I watched last night, I mean, it was the extended edition or director's cut or whatever, but it wasn't short, even when it wasn't. 
And they just put in every conceivable character scene. If a scene suggestion came up during the writing of the script, they put it in and they left it in and it was there. Yeah. And it's just like there's so much. It's so baggy with all of this extra stuff that you don't need, Uh, you know, and all these extra characters. And, And then, of course, bless Morgan Freeman. Well, yeah. What the hell is he doing? Well, this is the I thing. What's that got to do with anything? If you were going to have an extra character in a movie, you should put it into a movie that doesn't have enough characters. Not a movie that has, oh, Sheriff of Nottingham, and Guy of Gisborne, and Will Scarlet, and Little John, and, and Friar Tuck. Ah, and but there Marion, is a precedent. There is a precedent. Uh, the ITV of uh, Robert Sherwood had a uh, Muslim character in there, as I recall. It was Nazir. Nazir. Well, I'm not. I'm not right. If you're doing a television series, that's a different thing because in a single episode, you concentrate on some characters, and you can have more characters in a different episode. That's fine. When you're doing a single standalone, well, movie, you know why? It's, it's you know it's kind of like writing by committee. They're like, well, we've got a, there's no one black in it. You know, we've got to have... We've got we need to have a that. wise black man in this movie somewhere. And we've got to have, you know, this is all very, you know, it's you can just see the kind of, yeah, we've, this is politically correct. We've got to have this. We've got to have that. I don't know. I just... Yeah. yeah. I think my... I mean, my main problem with Kevin Costner is really, you know, um, you might as well just be filming The Forest. It's got more livelier than his performances, isn't it? <laughs> to be fair, he that is one of the key things. He, there's no energy to Robin Hood as portrayed by Kevin Costner. The other problem I have is Will Scarlet is Christian, bless his little soul. Um, Christian Slater has is generally a good actor on the whole. He phones it in in this thing. You well, can tell he's not bothered. Again, another one who's got an American accent running around, couldn't give a damn. Yeah, but I think there's a point at which... Couldn't give a damn. I think there's a point at which... Because, of course, film actors experience the film in a different way when they're filming it. Like, he might have got all of his scenes. And if you put all of Will Scarlet's scenes together and then think this is a 90-minute movie, you'd think, wow, my part is really quite strong. And then at some point, Christian Slater gets the wind that the script for this thing would bring the film out about two and a half hours. And that, therefore, relatively speaking, Will Scarlet has no part in this movie. Then he reads the part over again. He goes, this doesn't really make any sense either. And then he just goes, oh, I can't believe I've signed on to this. And he just, like, gives up. And that's what happens, you know? Probably, but it just... It just adds to the, I can't, you know, this build. Well, just, I, I don't think it was anything that cynical. I mean, he, I think he just didn't have much to hold on to, really, did he? He's not like, you're not yeah. like Kevin Costner was bouncing off him very well in terms of performance. <laughs> well, it's, it's the fact that it's just like, I'm Will Scarlet, I have problems with Robin, then it turns out Robin is my brother. And, oh, and even it's all a... of that reveal is all very American and all very, oh, it you're is. my brother. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, the whole thing. Brian about, Blessed is uh, also my father. Yes. Yeah, but in a very American <laughs> way. <laughs> but my, my, the point is, overall... Let's go and get a Diet Coke and have a hamburger. Yeah. 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 Over... Like, uh, no, it's... Joe and Boris here, they drive me mad. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, overall, the interesting thing is that, you know, if we take the movie of The Year Before Ghost, people still watch Love and Enjoy Ghost to this day. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? The theme tune's more important <clears throat> than the... Yes, yes, because it gets played the at weddings. The theme tune lives forever. And 
the thing that tells you that this was always going to be the case is that when they got the theme tune and they received the lyrics printed in a copy of Smash Hits uh, as it arrived on the desk of the production crew of Robin Hood, they went, get the scriptwriter, write lyrics from the, the theme song into the script. Yeah, because Kevin Custer's <clears throat> constantly going, I die for you. Yeah. Oh I dear! Die for you! You don't know, watch the film again. Seriously, every other word is yes. Marion. I die for you. Yeah, there's nowhere unless you're there. Yeah, <laughs> I die for you. I would do it for you. <laughs> they do. They, the film is full of the lyrics of the song, and then they orchestrally play it. Play it. In the it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which... like sat there going, yeah, this is a this is a film based solely around a Brian Adams hit. Oh <laughs> dear. So uh, the, the yeah. people who watch this movie, I what the '69 reference was later in the film. <laughs> Anyway, sorry. Yes, Ian? The, the people who watched this film contemporary to the nineties were were kids in the nineties. Uh, really, they're the they're the ones who have looked. You can't show it to kids these days. They'll probably be bored and unstimulated or something. But it, it was the kind of it was you know. I'm not saying it was a Star Wars of its day. It definitely wasn't that. But it, it was it was the film kids didn't mind sitting down and watching again and again. You know, in my experience, I think that's where it had it had its nineties longevity. It certainly hasn't endured time overall but is it, no, is it kevin costa's most famous film i think the only thing that competes the things that compete with this for attention are another forgotten movie dances That's with worlds yeah, yeah. yeah three hours of kevin costa oh, oh, uh, going through american guilt about the uh, <laughs> manifest <laughs> destiny <laughs> thing pondering whether or not he's on the right side or not yeah um <laughs> Uh, as immortalised in that classic movie Avatar by James Cameron later <laughs> on in the remake. And then the other movie, I think the the, the movie that Kevin Costner is most famous for... Does it begin with a W, by It does. It's Waterworld. <laughs> yeah. That's his legacy, is Waterworld. Mad yeah, but the postman was nowhere near as good as Waterworld, was, was it? That's such amazing film. That's much what, better. What, which was, sorry? Apocalyptic postman. What more could you want? Well, yeah, the postman was just like a, a, a horrible, slimy, full stop after Waterworld, really. I just, right. yeah. So, uh, yeah, there we go. That was uh, 1991. I think uh, 1991 was a point where the, or, there was a lot of weird stuff in the 80s. And I think in 1991, it finally came, now that it was the 90s, it finally broke out. And sometimes it made a, an unusual success. And sometimes it meant hideous disaster. But generally, it was just weird. Adam's and, family and, weird, you could say. Yeah, well, oh, yes. I mean, that was a film. These, I, the only thing is, I didn't really want to... I don't want to talk too much about the Adam's family because we, we're running short on time anyway. But the, the other thing about it is, in this case... The Adams Family, I feel, those two movies, that one and the, the, the Family Values one that followed, were kind of like another thing like Dick Tracy. Not that it was, Dick Tracy was actually a terrible movie as well, whereas The Adams Family is not bad. But The Adams Family was something that we were told was going to be big, and it never really was. It was more of a launch for Christina Ricci, whatever her name is, that young child actress who became actress, actress. That was kind of a launch. Yeah. Yes, and of course, uh, Last Boy Scout was this year as well. So, yeah, I, I was trying to find a copy of that to watch again. I would love to talk about it, but as I was unsuccessful in my quest, I I cannot. Has anyone else got more recent fonder memories of Last Boy Scout? Uh, I can't say I ever really watched it. 
93 was last time I saw it. It was enjoyable. I can't remember too much about it. Other yes, than it was I, kind of good. I'm exactly the same boat as you, Ian. I enjoyed it, but I wouldn't really be able to hold forth upon it. Uh, it is interesting to note that it is from the man that brought you the lethal weapon, well, one and two, certainly, um, later on, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Iron Man 3. This is a un film uh, written by, penned by Shane Black. Lethal Weapon meets Bruce Willis. Lethal Weapon meets Die Hard. And, and well regarded for that. And, and un film de Tony Scott as well. There's a lot of good stuff that goes on in Last Boy Scout, which leads me to wonder if it is not a film that should be considered a second time. But uh, unfortunately, you have to go quite a long way out of your way to get hold of a copy. So, To sum up, basically, weirdness breaks out in 91. Yes. And I, I haven't looked as far as 92, so I don't know what, what's to follow. I remember we, we did a few years back in the 80s where there's a lot of disappointments. And I think that with the exception of things like Terminator and uh, Silence of the Lambs, you know, Robin Hood performed as expected, pretty much. This was a year where either the film crew were disappointed because the public didn't respond, or the public went to see something in droves and went, oh, what the hell was that? And there was very little kind of that slipped through in between that. So, yeah. Also, I am, I am starting to note as we go through the 90s, this vast preponderance of films which were kind of big at the time. They're kind of like your mid-level September-October release, This, you know, that kind of film these days that gets a solid DVD release and remembered affectionately and what have you that have just been completely shelved and forgotten. So, final thoughts, Justin, on, on 1991? I think it was a pretty good year, but it's beginning to lose a bit of momentum, I'm feeling. Yes, I think that's definitely... There is a winding down to the... Or even sort of the building up of a new ethic, but it's all very confused. That's what yeah. I... Yeah. Yes, the, the glory days are behind us. Once you've done Terminator 2, really, where do you go after that? Well, one place you could go would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook's forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as numbers to 80s. Please go there and like our page. It's our community hub. We put up our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting and very occasionally discussions. So yes, please go there and leave a comment. We will respond. But uh, podcasts are what it's all about, so point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S kids dot podomatic dot com. Uh, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice, or download direct to your PC for dark reasons of your own. But this is only where our most recent podcasts can be found. Yes, our archive of all our podcasts can be found on uh, leostableford.com, although possibly for not much longer at this stage, uh, where we will be moving to a dedicated home all of our own but uh, stay tuned uh, to the same bat time same bat channel for details of that upcoming also this year apart from the leostelford.com archive of old 80s kids shows i am also now engaged in uh, a new serial which is called the elias anomaly and may be found on wattpad uh, and you can find links to wattpad and my profile and therefore after to the serial from my blog and Wattpad is kind of like a sort of, for those that don't know, deviant art for writers. Uh, but there's also a deviant art for artists. And what's that called, Justin? Uh, yeah, I think it's called deviant art, actually. Um, and uh, you can find examples of my work on my deviant art page uh, under the name Justin Wise, Tappy White. 
Oh, well, I'm just sticking this in now because I can't bother doing it as a coder. Whilst in college, or someone else on our course was called uh, Owen Wilson, not to be confused with the actor Owen Wilson, and he submitted the Who Had All the Pies, Who Had All the Pies, Kevin Costner, Kevin Costner, Who Pies, to Empire Magazine, who published it as a letter, and it was uh, photocopied very large and pinned to the wall of our edit suite. So there we go. <laughs> yes. So uh, basically, if you'd have been reading Empire Magazine circa 1991, at some point on the letters page, you would have seen the popular football chant uh, with the name Kevin Costner substituting for the usual lyrics. It's a football uh, reference? I now yes, appreciate it, it on a whole different level. <laughs> it scales have fallen from the So on that bombshell, we shall see you next time on Revenge of the 80s Kids. Bye-bye. See you later. Hasta la vista, baby. You seriously didn't know that was a football chant. I should point out at this stage that in addition to music, another field of human activity I know very little about is sport. Oh no, I know nothing. I hate football. But I happen to know that a football chant is... is Leo, if you can go through life not knowing anything about music, you can go through life not knowing anything about sport. It's very easy. I guess. Uh, yes, it's who ate all the pies, who ate all the pies, you fat bastard, you fat bastard, you ate all the pies. And I think they would chant it... They would either chant it at fat people in the in the stadium. Or, if they thought that a football player was getting a bit porky. Oh, well, Sue's football, coming, Sue knows. Football fans football can be so mean. Yes, I don't know. <laughs> I just saw it. I thought they were a lovely, fluffy kind of individual. What is it? What's what's going on then? Uh, who ate all the pies? Oh, they shout that to either the referees, because the referees are fat assholes. That they yeah, there we go, referees. Um... Players who, you know, seem to not, put on, look at, not necessarily putting on a bit of weight, but who are slagging a bit on the field. Right, fair enough. Or other supporters. There we go. You see, I got two out of the three. I didn't get the referee <laughs> thing. So, for someone who was completely making it up, I, uh, I, I completely got that right. So, there we go. But, yes, as we say, Owen Wilson, uh, not the actor, but someone who was on our course of college, sent a letter to Empire Magazine saying, who ate all the pies? Who ate all the pies? Kevin Costner. Kevin <laughs> you ate all the pies. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was Trey Amusant. <laughs>